to be back in the house of the Lord on this Lord's Day morning again to share in the word with all of God's people. I'm especially grateful um, to God that he has graced us and been with us through our study of the book of Ephesians. And now we are finally moving into chapter two. So chapter one took us about three or four Sundays. So we're moving into chapter two of this this great book. Now, chapter two speaks much about our salvation and our former life and what we know as the doctrine of sanctification. In the introduction to this chapter, Paul reminds us of our former condition. But not only that, he emphasizes for us who are saved what Christ has saved us from and where we stand with him today. As I thought about how to title this sermon I couldn't think of a more appropriate thing to say than we died to live. And the other sermon title I thought about is dying to live, which I think all of us are in one of two positions. We died so that we would live or we are dying to live. Yeah. We were all mortified, deceased, and decaying in the wretchedness of our sin. And like we discussed last week, we had no hope. But now, by the grace of God, we have been made alive in Christ. And we are no longer prisoners to ourselves and our sins. What a great joy that should be for all of us who believe is that in our former life, We were in chains. We were in prison. We were in captivity. We were in bondage to our sin and to ourselves. But God has made us alive and freed us from sin because of his amazing grace. And that brings us to Ephesians chapter 2 today. We're starting at verse 1. And it reads... And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's thank God for the reading and exposition of his word. Now, when we read the scripture, it says you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. 
Now, immediately, some people will hear that and think to themselves, now, wait a minute, I wasn't dead. In fact, I was living my truth. I was very much alive in all the sin and all the wrong that I was doing. I wasn't dead, baby. I was living. But allow me to pose this question to you. Let's say I took you to a mortuary and we went downstairs where they embalmed the bodies. And on those, on, in, on, in that mortuary downstairs, there are two tables with two separate bodies on them. And one of them had been there for approximately three hours, while the other one had been there for about three months. Now, they're both being embalmed and prepared for their funeral and their burial. But the one that was there for three months, obviously, has started the decomposition process and is decaying. In fact, it stinks and rigor mortis has set in. Now, let me ask you this question. It's pretty simple. Out of those two bodies, which one is the debtor of the two? The one that had been there for three months or the one that had been there for three hours? See, one can look good and yet be dead. The other one can look terrible and yet be dead. See, the definition of death is the absence of life. And the definition of death is not how ugly you look in the absence of that life. Men without God are one thing. They're dead. Now, some look good and are dead. Some look okay and are dead. And some look horrible and are dead. Regardless of your state of decomposition, we were all dead before coming to Christ. Listen. It is a sobering reminder to us all that we were all dead in our sins and our trespasses prior to our salvation. But what is probably even more sobering is that just like an actual dead body, you can never convince anybody who is dead just how dead they really are. You can't walk up to anybody in a casting and say, you sure are dead. You can't convince them of that death because they are dead. And just like that, when you come to a person, unless Christ has first come to them, there is nothing you can do to convince them how dead they really are. Because they're dead. Now, just like them, we had no consciousness of what we were when we were apart from God. But the emphasis here should be on what we were. See, Paul is referring to the fact that as Christians, we should not be walking in the flesh or the course of this world. Remember, he tells us in this book how we are to walk. He says, walk in the spirit because when we were in the world, dead in our sins, we walked according to the course of the world. There are two distinct states that an individual can be in and no other. We are either dead in our sins or we have died to our sins. But there is no in between. 
In fact, Romans 6 and 10 tells it to us quite emphatically. For the death he died, that's Jesus, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Listen again, as Christians, we were dead, but Christ died so that we could live. And we now consider ourselves dead to sin, but we're alive in God, to God in Christ. Now, when we were in our sins, they dominated us. We were ruled by our sins. Our sins led us and they kept us right in line with the course of the world. Now, the course of this world is a reference that Paul is making to the culture of the sinful world that doesn't acknowledge God in the truth of who he is. Now, the world can be defined as all of the philosophies and ideological beliefs that go against God's biblical wisdom and truth. It is what is valued above and against the values that God has established. Now, how do we see the working of the world? Well, 2 Corinthians explains it to us pretty clearly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the scripture tells us, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And then it says, We destroy it arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So what does Paul say shows us about the world? He says one arguments arguments. It is a common practice in the world to argue against everything the Bible has told us and ascribes to us about who God actually is. Listen, what the world says about sex, marriage, entertainment, politics, morality, always go against God. They always go against God. See, this is why Paul says we once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Everything that is said, done and orchestrated against biblical truth is controlled by Satan. It is manipulated by Satan. Whatever the narrative is, if it goes against biblical truth, it is controlled and manipulated by Satan. And that is why we don't fight a physical fight here on earth. Because he says that the spirit of Satan is at work in the sons of disobedience. Our weapons are of the flesh or carnal because the fight is a spiritual one. We are not engaged in a political fight. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. This is why we don't take it lightly when someone makes some argument against anything that we can confirm in the Bible. Because it comes from no other source than Satan himself. Now, saying that the spirit is at work in them doesn't mean that people who are apart from God are literally possessed by Satan. But what it does tell us is that they are under the influence of Satan's rule. 
Listen, the Bible makes it clear. The world is his domain. He is the prince of the power of the air. He manipulates it. He controls it. He controls the music that's transcribed through the air. What happens on TV through the airways, that is his region. That is his kingdom. He manipulates our minds by influencing what we hear, what we watch, what we think, and what we say, inevitably leading us to do everything that he's influencing us to do. Now, even sometimes we may have conversations with people in the world and they may say something that seems profound about God. And at first glance, we say, oh, you know, that that sounds kind of true. But then you realize if it disagrees with what the Bible says, then it can't possibly be true. So it doesn't matter how profound somebody may sound. You can absolutely be profoundly wrong. That is why Jesus tells us that the spirit of the Antichrist, before the Antichrist comes, the spirit of the Antichrist has already gone out into the world and he's fooling people left and right, deceiving them, pretending to be a true prophet of God, but is really a wolf in sheep's clothing. And the beautiful part, though, is that Jesus says he will lead many astray. Even if he could, he can't. He would lead the very elect astray. Why can we not be led astray? Because we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us those who are in his hand, there is nothing and no one that can snatch us out of his hand. So the false prophet, the spirit of the Antichrist is already out there in the world. And there are many who are being deceived by it. Led astray by false doctrines and false teachings. They are from Satan. Now, I want you to understand this. We are angry at Satan who is at work in these people, but we are gracious to those who are being influenced by him. You understand that? Yes, we are absolutely mad. That's why the Bible says be angry and sin not. Be angry at what angers God. We are absolutely angry at the work of Satan in the world. But we are not angry at the people he's influencing. Let me, ask you, let me tell you why. Because look at what it says. It says, and you were. You understand that? That means we can condemn the spirit that is at work in them, but because it was at work in us, we should also see that their blindness is because of their deadness. And lest we forget, we were all at one point dead, blind, deaf, and dumb, who because of the saving work of Jesus Christ have now been made alive. But and so when Christ died for us, he made us alive in him. So we don't stand in condemnation of anyone who is dead because I hate to break news to you. They are no deader in their sins than we were. So. When we see the lostness of others who are dead in their sins, it should be our motivation to lead them to life everlasting. Because when we see who we are, when we see who they are, we should see who we were. So let me ask you this question. 
for all my Christians in here. Is the world representative of who you were or who you are? Listen, how we think, what we say, and what we do is what shows whether or not our hearts have been changed by God. Listen, if, if what you think about a matter is in opposition to what God thinks about it, then change the way you think about it. Because you are dead to that. Everywhere in the Bible, there, listen, are obviously things that even I myself want to argue against and say, surely, God, you didn't mean this. Say, no, it doesn't mean this. But that is literally what it means when we walk according to the course of the world. We want to take the biblical truth and manipulate it to fulfill the place in our hearts that we think it should. But we must take the Bible as inerrant, as face value. There is not one line in the Bible that is more authoritative than the other. All scripture is breathed out of the mouth of God and is profitable for reproof and correction. Even the parts of the Bible you disagree with. Listen. We have to break the hold that the world has on us. And the only way that we can break it is that if God breaks it for us. Do you remember when Jesus is giving his sermon on the mount and he, he's given the Beatitudes and he goes on and he makes these blessed statements. And I think we all are pretty familiar with them. You remember what he said? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, peacemakers, pure at heart, the persecuted and reviled. And then he made a promise. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Why do all these things specifically bring us the kingdom of God? Think about it. All of these things go directly against everything that the world values. See, Jesus says, be poor in spirit, be reviled, be persecuted, suffer, go through. Yours is the kingdom. You will inherit the kingdom as a result of this. See, for him to say be poor in spirit goes specifically against what the world has said. See, the world tells us to think of ourselves, please ourselves, take care of us, buy that car, close on, not that house, but that house, divorce that spouse. Everything about us is about us in the world. But that isn't what Jesus says. See, why does dying to ourselves bring us the kingdom of God? Because living for ourselves brings us the kingdom of Satan. That's what he's saying. See, where is Satan's kingdom? Satan's kingdom is literally anywhere that anybody preaches right here, right now. That's Satan's domain. Our scripture told us he is the prince of the power of the air. So the world is his domain. The culture is his. The arguments are his. Anything that says you can have heaven on earth is a lie from Satan. Because that's the lie he's literally been telling since the beginning. You won't surely die. 
you will be like God. He's literally been forcing that lie down our throats and like fools, we have been believing it ever since. See, you must understand that Satan is offering us what he can't even give us. Because inevitably what Satan wants for us all to realize is that the kingdom he has promised us is built on eggshells and is as fulfilling as the air. He did the exact same thing to Jesus. Here he has Jesus, whom he knows exactly who Jesus is, and he guarantees him two things. If I give you everything, will you kill yourself? You remember that? He says, I will give you the world. And Jesus is like, you don't even have the power to give it to me. And when that doesn't work, he says, just jump off the mountain and prove to me you really are independent, who you really are. That is the chief goal of Satan. He wants us to build and reside in our kingdoms here on earth only for us to realize that what we thought would fulfill us absolutely cannot fulfill us. And inevitably, he wants us to destroy ourselves because everything we search for, we'll get and realize that it was a God-sized void in our hearts. See, Apart from Christ, we all hedonistically sit on the throne of our kingdom, which is condemning us day by day by day. And that is why Jesus says, woe to them. Now, he's not saying that like y'all have great punishment, but he's saying it's a pity on them who think that this kingdom that they are building is even close to the kingdom that I've prepared for them. So the second thing that the world shows us and tries to convince us of is that we are enough. We're not. But the world tries to convince us of that. I can't tell you how many times I'm on social media, how many posts I see. You are enough. You have value. You have this. You have that. Let me tell you, unless you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have no value. Then what? You have no value apart from him because he is the one that establishes your value. And if you are not allowing the death of Christ to save you, you have stripped any value that the father is able to see in you. You say, well, that's not true. Well, the reason we know it is true is because if you die in your sins apart from him, what do you receive? Eternal and everlasting punishment. That is the value that you have apart from him. That's why it says we were dead in our sins. What can a dead body provide for us? Nothing. That is who we all were apart from him. Listen, when we were in the world, we lived for one somebody. That was us. When we were in the world, we lived for nobody else but us. Let's look again what the scripture says. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Look at that. Again, the emphasis that we were. 
We were all, every single one of us, living only for ourselves. No matter how benevolent you think you might have been in your sins, there is some kind of way that everything you tried to do was for your own glory. We were all driven by the passions of our flesh. Now, when we see this, we automatically, I know how we think. We think, okay, the passions of our flesh. Oh, he's talking about sexual. All right, so I'm good with that. But it extends far beyond just sexual sins here. Let's look at what the work of the flesh is. And we were here a few weeks ago. Galatians 5, 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. The first one is sexual immorality. That is a work of the flesh. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, but then watch this, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All of this tells us that in some kind of way, when we were dead in our sins, we were guilty of at least one of those sins. I mean, let's be for real. I think everybody in here knows it wasn't just one of them we were guilty of. I don't know about y'all, but I checked a lot of boxes on that list. It says, those who do these things do not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he isn't talking about Christians who sin. Because we will all periodically in times of our lives disobey the spirit that lives within us. We will ignore the conviction of the spirit. But it is because we have been sealed by the spirit that even when we sin, it won't be habitual. It won't be continuous. And it will have repentance that follows it. Now, he says, but those who walk in this, the contrary is that if you're not walking in the spirit, you are walking in the works of the flesh. Those are the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those whose lives are defined by their sins. Why again do they not inherit the kingdom of God? Because they are living in their kingdom of self-gratification. Jesus pities them because these people will never understand that the kingdom they have built, like I said earlier, is as tough as eggshells. There was a famous journalist who would tell stories of all these famous people she would meet before they had achieved their fame and riches. And she would meet them at restaurants, diners, um, any kind of places that they worked. And when she would have conversations with them, they would all talk about their greatest anticipation would be to be rich and to be famous. She said that was most of their hopes. It wasn't to be an actor. It wasn't to be a singer. It was to be rich and to be famous. Now, because she was a journalist, she would have an opportunity to follow up with these people after they achieved those goals that they were desiring. And she wrote that the consistent trend that she found is that those people were far less happy than when she had met them before. 
Because they had gained everything, they had attained everything in their lives that they thought would fulfill them. And then they realized that it brought them nothing. Listen, that is why it is the great deception of Satan. He wants us all to exhaust ourselves, to indulge in ourselves, only to realize that the kingdom he offered was incomparable to that of the kingdom of God. That is why in the Lord's Prayer, we say, your kingdom come. And then we follow it right up by saying, and your will be done. You cannot live both in the kingdom of God while simultaneously living in the kingdom of Satan. At one time in our lives, we all tried. We all tried. We tried to straddle the fence. But I think all of us have realized that even when we try to straddle the fence, we're lawyers only to one side. But the beauty thing, the beautiful thing now is that we died to that. Now, with all that death and dying, I know you may be saying, where is the hope? You talked last week about all this hope. And now you didn't talk about death and dying and death and death and death and death. I can summarize it for you. You say, where is the hope? It's in two words that Paul utters in that scripture. But God. There is the hope right there. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Look at that. But God being rich in grace, being rich in mercy, while we were dead, deceased, decomposing, decaying. He snatched us out of the grips of Satan and our sin and he made us alive in Christ. But not only that, he already reserved our seat in heaven. So there's a seat waiting on all of us when we get there. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. That means if you are a Christian, your ticket has been punched. There is a seat waiting on you but God that is the hope that is the glorious hope that we all have is that we were dead but he has made us alive in him and one day I will reside in his kingdom live in his kingdom eat from his table which means the kingdom that Satan is offering to me, you can keep it. Because there's a seat waiting on all of us who believe. And then I love it. He reminds us, lest we forget, we have been saved by grace. By grace. 
I quote it all the time. But Charles Spurgeon said, a sinner is a sacred thing only because the Holy Spirit has made him that way. See, the one prerequisite to your salvation is the fact that you must be a sinner and that you must be dead. You must have the realization of that death and Christ will snatch us. That's why we pass not from life to death, but we pass from death to life. Let's close with this. Knowing that we are forever indebted to him. There's one thing that we commit to do to him, for him, every single day. Knowing that we have died. Knowing that he has made us alive. Knowing that he has saved us by his grace. Given us his mercy. Provided a seat in eternity for us. There's one thing we must commit to doing every single day. Dying again. Every single day that we wake up. Not today, Satan. When really you need to just say, not today, Brandon. You have to get up every single day and crucify the desires of the flesh and recommit every single day your life to Christ. He said, I died yesterday and I got to die today. There's this stupid movie out today. Happy Death Day 2. But it has just a little hint of truth to it. Because every single day she relives her death over and over and over again. And the only thing I will say about that movie is that do what she does. Every single day consider yourself dead and dead and dead to your sins, to your flesh, to your loyalties, but alive in Christ Jesus having that seat that's waiting on you in your mind. And so, he reminds us, we die to our will, we die to our way in the course of the world that tells us that we are our own. We are not. We are his workmanship, created in Christ unto good works. So, yes, yes, we die, but we die so that we may live. Let's pray.